In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. The fourth LDS article of faith states, We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. In our previous episode of the Outer Brightness podcast, we each discussed our past experiences as Latter-day Saints related to the necessity of baptism and the sacrament, what most Christians refer to as the Lord's Supper, communion, etc., whether differences in viewpoints on the sacraments or ordinances disrupt the unity of the Christian church, and how we now prepare and receive the Lord's Supper and baptism as born-again Christians. In this episode, we would like to take a closer look at the subject. As full-time missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every, during every weekly meeting at least, for those of us who are young enough to use preach my gospel, <coughs> sorry Paul, <coughs> we recited the following. Our purpose is to invite others to come into Christ by helping them receive the restored gospel through faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. We were taught and we taught others that, without question, except for those who pass away before the age of eight, the age of accountability, water baptism and confirmation were absolutely necessary ordinances that everyone must receive from a Latter-day Saint priesthood holder to be eligible to enter the celestial kingdom, the highest of the three degrees of heaven. There were no ifs, ands, or buts. If someone did not receive the restored gospel, which included faith, repentance, water baptism by immersion, and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, he or she must receive these ordinances by proxy in the LDS temple. There was just no getting around it. In previous episodes, we have described our personal journeys out of the LDS church and toward biblical Christianity. In continuing our faith journeys, one topic that was of particular concern to me was what water baptism is, what it signifies, who must receive it, and whether it is still an absolute requirement for eternal life. The same was true for the sacrament. Why do Christians do it? Do they believe the same things that I did about it? Does God do anything in the sacrament, or is it a memorial only? During this episode, we hope to address some of these questions and describe how we have grown in our understanding of Scripture concerning water baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
We will also dive into passages that we often used as LDS missionaries to demonstrate that we must receive baptism in order to be saved and reconsider whether this is still the case. While we three may have differing views on these topics, we recognize that there is room for disagreement based on the teachings of the Word of God. We all recognize this to be an important topic and that baptism and communion are commanded to be observed in Christ's church by the Lord himself. While we may not understand them in the same way, we acknowledge that we are brothers in Christ's church and that we each are seeking to follow him, to be conformed to his image, and that we must be willing to be teachable. A Christian's journey never ends, and we hope that this discussion will be enlightening and help you along our continuing faith journey. Throughout this episode, the words ordinances and sacraments may be used interchangeably depending on our own personal beliefs, while recognizing that these terms are not always synonymous. We also recognize that some traditions view a differing number of total sacraments or ordinances, but following the previous episodes titled What About Sacraments or Ordinances, we will be limiting our discussion to the historic Protestant view that the sacraments or ordinances comprise baptism by water and the Lord's Supper. For an extended discussion on this, we recommend listening to these previous episodes. Thanks for joining us, Fireflies. In our previous episodes on the subject of sacraments and ordinances, we discussed our understanding of what non-LDS sacraments ordinances were. So before getting into specific passages about water baptism and the Lord's Supper, would you like to discuss in general what these sacraments or ordinances are, what they signify, whether they are means of grace, etc., based on your understanding of Scripture? There's a lot to unpack there, but uh, hopefully we can just kind of get our feet wet. Uh, hey, that's a joke. So, um, <laughs> yeah. That was okay. Yeah. Uh, our feet, he's, our feet he's, are... given you, he's given you a run for no, being able not. to prove total depravity. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah that was bad i was gonna say well feet legs torso and head we got a full immersion nothing else i think we'll just sprinkle we'll just do some sprinkling here mm, i mean i won't dog you for it but all right uh so michael how about you go first sure thing so i believe that the sacraments are primarily symbolic and that the uh the communion is symbolic of christ's flesh and blood that was shed for us and that baptism is a symbolism of Christ's death um, and his resurrection which we are showing that we are also a part of when we get baptized and I have a lot of thoughts on this but I think for the most part I want to save a lot of it for later on in the discussion but uh, you know one of the things I do want to just just touch on briefly and I'll get more into it later is in Romans chapter 4 Paul talks about uh, circumcision and how it was a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. So it was a seal of righteousness that he already had. And I believe that, that the sacrament, specifically baptism, acts in the same way. So you would say that it is, it is a sign and seal of our faith in Christ? Correct. Yeah, I would say that it is a sign and seal of our faith in Christ, but it is also a gift that that he gives us, and it is a sign and seal of his love for us. So I'd say it kind of goes both ways there. Okay, awesome. And uh, we look forward to hearing more of your thoughts later in the discussion. So, Paul, would you like to go into your opinions on this? Yeah, so um, but you're asking what they, what they signify, whether they're means of grace um, based on our understanding of Scripture. So baptism, um, I believe it's a, the act of baptism is an outward sign of an inward change of heart. Um, so God has regenerated the believer and given them, given them a new heart. Uh, a change has taken place that, that moves the sinner from a state of rebellion towards God to a state of love towards God. And that change, um, in, in my understanding, precedes faith. 
Um, and for that, you know, I'd reference John six forty six. Um, baptism itself is is symbolic of of new birth, of dying, uh, uh, being buried, and being raised again with Christ Jesus into new life, um, according to Romans six three through five. But um, it's also the sign of new covenant believers. And the Lord's Supper, um, I think, signifies and confers to believers who partake the benefits of Christ's mediation on our behalf. Um, it is a time of reflection on the grace of God offered to offered in the sacrifice of his son. Um, and I'm a real presence guy when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And by that, I mean that I believe that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper spiritually, not corporally. Um, and I suppose that I'd say that my reading of scripture and my experience uh, might lead me to call it a time of real communion with my Lord. In terms of whether the sacraments are, are means of grace, I would say yes. Um, I believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are means of grace. They're, they're not mere memorials and symbols. Um, God does work through them. And um, even though they, they are both memorials and symbols, there is, there's a sense in which they are effectual in the life of the believer. Um, and by that, I mean, God works through them to confirm and strengthen uh, our trust in the Lord. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, yeah, I really don't have too much to disagree with you there, Paul. Um, so yeah, so the listeners by now should probably know that, um, I'm a particular Baptist, Reformed Baptist, whatever you want to call us. We hold to the, uh, so our church holds to the 1677, 1689, uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, and also we have, uh, we have the Baptist Catechism that's kind of related to that. Um, so I, I agree with a lot with, 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 uh, with what Paul says. In preparing for this episode, I was reading um, from uh, Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatics, and he talks about the various views of baptism and what they signify and whether they're effectual in the giving of the sacrament itself or, or whether it's only through faith. And so there's a lot of history behind that. But basically, but basically yeah, the Reformed view, which, which would also include my view, is that the sacraments are a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace being that covenant that God made with man to, which included providing a savior, the Lord Jesus to, to pay for the guilt, uh, for the debt and the guilt and the negative consequences of the fall and of sin. And so through covenants, God through time has interacted with, with mankind and baptism and the Lord's supper. They are signs and seals of the covenant of grace so that they're signs and that they signify the, the reality underneath what they signify. So in baptism, we've, you've already discussed very beautifully that it represents many things. It represents uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and also the fact that the believer dies unto sin and, and rises with Christ. Um, this is shown in uh, passages like Romans 6, 3 through 4, where Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And um, so we, we do see that, that, union, that union with Christ and, and dying to sin and, and being raised up with Christ. Uh, you also see uh, passages like Titus chapter 3, um, Starting with verse four, Paul says, but when the goodness and loving, loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so I think that passage is, is baptism 
signifies a cleansing, a washing. You know, we think of water as a cleansing agent. We use it to wash our clothing, we use it to wash our bodies. And so it's, it's signifying this spiritual in, inward cleansing performed by the Holy Spirit. So there's the, the baptism by water, kind of what John the Baptist taught. And then he said, there would be one greater than me who would come after me and he would baptize by fire and the Holy Ghost. And I, and I think that, and I was listening to R.C. Sproul talk about baptism. And he said that this is something that only the Lord, the, the Savior Jesus Christ can perform, that uh, it's not something that man can do. And that's why John the Baptist said that he was, un, he was unworthy to do it. So, so this is this, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this inward cleansing, it's, it's something that only God can do. And so there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of signs and a lot of, uh, symbolism related to baptism and related to the Lord's Supper. And so we'll talk a lot more about specific passages that relate to baptism. Um, these were just several that I picked out that we were, that we, that I didn't originally pick out for a discussion. So I thought that'd be good to, to bring up, but, but the reformed view is not that baptism or the Lord's Supper are effectual in and of themselves apart from faith. So they're only, they're only effectual unto salvation. Um, Question 96 in the Baptist Catechism. It says, how is the word made effectual to salvation? Uh, sorry, let me skip that. <laughs> I meant question 98. So how do baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation? And the answer is, baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that administers them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. So it's it's the sacraments are blessed by Christ. They're working they're the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and they are effectual means of salvation to those who receive them. So we believe that you're actually united to the benefits of salvation, namely the person of Christ, his body and blood, and all the, re, all the redemptive aspects of the plan of salvation, of the, the covenant of grace. All that is applied to the believer through faith. So, hey, Matthew, can I jump in here? Sure. So listening to you talk, um, I suspect that there, if, if there are uh, – Latter-day Saints or post-Latter-day Saints listening, um, they might hear you say this and, and, and go, Hey, he's saying the same thing we are. Right. So um, how, what would you say is the difference? Uh, right. What, what's the difference between the position you're espousing with regards to baptism, for example, and baptismal regeneration? All right. Great question. So I, uh, so I saved a, a little excerpt from Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatics that I wanted to bring up. It's in volume four, page 521, if anybody wants to cross-check me. So in here, um, he talks about all the benefits of baptism, including justification or the forgiveness of sins, uh, regeneration, repentance, the dying away of the old self, the coming to life, fellowship, not only with Christ himself, but also with the church. So all these benefits that he's been talking about in this chapter, Bavinck says this, quote, all these benefits have already been bestowed on the baptized person before baptism in the word of the gospel. They were received on the part of the baptized by faith. But now these benefits are further signified and sealed to them in baptism. Hence, the situation must not be pictured as one in which before baptism, only a few, and in any case, not all these benefits were granted in faith, and that the one or ones still lacking are now bestowed in baptism. For the word contains all the promises and faith accepts them all. There is not a single grace that is not conveyed by the word and only by the sacrament. Incorporation into the body of Christ also occurs through faith and receives its sign and seal in baptism. Baptismal grace exists and can, according to scripture and the Reformed Confession, exist in nothing other than in declaration and confirmation, close quote. So essentially, in the LDS view of salvation, kind of what I've talked about in the intro is that 
the benefits of salvation, being united to Christ, uh, redemption, forgiveness of sins, etc. We we do we kind of have these same ideas with Latter Day Saints when we think about baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper, but these are not 100% tied to the sacraments. In other words, you can have these benefits and you do have these benefits if you have faith in Christ, repentance and faith in Christ, without receiving baptism and, and uh, the Lord's Supper. These things are signs and seals. So they, they're they sealed in the sense of like, you know, if you write a letter to somebody, kind of like God, he takes, he, he puts a letter in the envelope and he seals it. And so it's like, it's not the, the letter never changed. The content of the letter is still the same, but when God puts his seal on it, he's saying, okay, I'm confirming to this. I'm confirming that this is mine, that this is legal, this is valid. But it doesn't mean that the content of the letter was incorrect. It just means that God is confirming to us through these outward sacraments to the believer and to the body of Christ that that He will make good on His promise, that that His covenant will be kept on His part. So I hope that explains it, and it wasn't too long-winded. Yeah, yeah, it does. And maybe maybe dive in a little bit deeper on this. So sure. And, and Michael, jump in here if if you have any thoughts on this. But I actually I was, have a question for you guys after after you give your thoughts, Paul. Okay. So I, I was thinking earlier about, you know, my position on regeneration and when it occurs. Mm-hmm. Um because I, I differ somewhat from some theologians within my own tradition. Uh and I and I do so based on what I what I think I see in the Bible. Um and I was thinking earlier, like, does, would you guys say that, that within Latter-day Saint theology, that there's a, a definitive um, concept of regeneration like there is within Christian theology? I, I don't think I saw it as, as a Latter-day Saint, and I just want to get your thoughts on that. I think that Latter-day Saints are all over the map when it comes to this sort of thing. I mean, I... I'll talk to Latter-day Saints and I'll get all the kinds of different answers that, you know, we do the best we can and then Christ does the rest. And then there's some who say that grace is an enabling power that allows us to become something. And so I just, I just think it just varies depending on what Latter-day Saint you're talking to. I mean, there's, I don't think there's anything set in the doctrine. I mean, the concept of being born again is there in the book of Mormon and so a lot of times I'll see people just say like, oh yeah, that's, that's baptism. You know, they'll, they'll look at Nicodemus or not Nicodemus, but John chapter three, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And I think that's where that idea comes from. And I think that's what I've seen most commonly is, you know, you, you enter into the covenant through baptism and that's when you are born again. But I don't think I've seen them use like the word regenerated, like you're talking about. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember it as a concept being talked about using that particular word. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, I agree. Um, that was a new term I learned um, once I kind of was born again and was learning about Christian theology. But, but I mean, Latter Day Saints do talk a lot about, like Michael said, uh, about being born again or being born of God. Mm-hmm. Um, I just checked uh, on the LDS website just really quickly. They have something called the Guide to the Scriptures. And I looked up that topic, born again or born of God, and it defines it as to have the spirit of the Lord cause a mighty change in a person's heart so that he has no more desire to do evil, but rather desires to seek the things of God. Mm-hmm. And I think the the passage that I remember most, um, I mean, there's the conversion of the, with the, what were they, what were their names? The sons of Ammon or something like that. Mm-hmm. In the, and uh, Alma the younger. Mm-hmm. Um, was it sons of Ammon? I can't even remember anymore. Mosiah. The sons of Mosiah. Sons of Mosiah, okay. But Ammon has sons too, right? So 
know. Yeah, let's but, just throw um, everybody's sons in there. And, <laughs> and Nephi, his sons. and No, Am- Ammon, Ammon was the one that chopped off the arms. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He was one of the sons of Messiah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew there was a connection there. So I remember, I mean, they had their miraculous kind of like conversion experiences where they were, you know, changed by God from being evil to, you know, good. But I, but I remember most was Mosiah 3. And I remember on my mission in Brussels, I was, I was reading that passage and how they just all felt this mighty change of heart and they wanted to make a covenant with God. And they just fell to their knees and there's just this outpouring of the spirit. And I remember reading that and being like, man, I wish I just had this, this, this feeling, this born again, you know, I wanted to constantly feel like I never wanted to do evil, but only do good. But I just felt so burdened, you know, like I never, it's like, I never do what's right. I, I don't have this desire. If I do, it's only momentary. And I was just remember really craving this, this born again experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think some Latter-day Saints, a lot of times they do associate it with uh, water baptism. Um, let's see. There's a passage in here that's referenced. Okay. Whosoever uh, believes on my word shall be born of me, even of water and of the spirit. This is Doctrine and Covenants 516. So I think there are other passages too that they would point to like John 3, 5, which we'll address later. But yeah, I think, I don't think they really go too deep into it, into the, this idea of regeneration. Yeah. I was kind of just remembering too, like you triggered this in me, Matthew, but I remember going to Institute and they were specifically telling everybody like, Hey, you know, don't assume that being born again is going to be this huge life changing experience. Sometimes it's really subtle. And then they'd kind of talk about like the different kinds of light, you know, coming into your life. Like sometimes it's like flipping on a light switch where it's real sudden and obvious. And sometimes it's more like the sun slowly coming up over the horizon and, and you don't really notice it as much. And I felt, I always felt kind of let down by that because I'm like, I I just felt like uh, it was just, I don't know, making an excuse for, for people who weren't having those kind of experiences, you know, just seemed really lackluster to me. I don't know if you ever heard anybody say stuff like that, but I remember them saying that at, at Institute. I heard that analogy used in relation to like revelation. You know, there were times when God would give revelation a little bit at a time or in sudden bursts of light, but I'd never really heard about that in terms of conversion experiences. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause they would say that, you know, a lot of times if you grew up in the church or something, you know, it wouldn't be as, as obvious because, you know, it was just given to you, you know, line upon line and precept upon precept. And so there was never just this huge moment of clarity. I mean, for me, it felt like there was a huge moment of clarity. So I felt like I had one of those big born again experiences, but uh, it seemed like a lot of people didn't have that. So I was kind of surprised. Yeah, it's, uh, it's that Messiah 3 passage that I was really thinking about, uh, Matthew and Michael. Um, because I think, I think Matthew, when we were on with, with RFM, he, he brought up that passage, right? Where, cause that's, that's um, Alma the elder, right? Is that what they call it? Alma the elder? It was, I thought it was uh, uh, Benjamin. It was King Benjamin. Oh, okay. Maybe not, but I'm, he brought up, so maybe not Messiah 3. He brought up the passage where um, after, Alma, right, who was a a, a judge in um, Wicked King Noah's court, right, uh, leaves and, and starts his ministry. Oh, Abinadi? Oh, I guess Alma. No, yeah. Alma he the Elder. A, yeah. Alma the Elder hears Abinadi's preaching, right, in the, right, right, in the narrative right. within the Book of Mormon, and he he leaves and runs away from from the wicked priests of Noah and and goes to the, I think, the waters of Mormon, right, and starts his ministry, and, and he 
he has some uh, some followers and he says to them, you know, have you, have you experienced that mighty change of heart? And, and if so, do you feel so now? And, yeah, and if so, what, what's stopping you from, from coming and being baptized, right? That whole speech that he gives, uh, Alma five, is that what you're saying, Michael? Yeah, that's, that's Alma five. Yeah. So, um, but RFM brought that up, uh, almost as if like, you know, yeah, so there's, there's this mighty change of heart and Alma asked them if, if you felt that, tell me, do you feel so now? And he was talking about it, like, see, there's this opportunity to fall away even after you've been regenerated. Um, but I, you know, that, I guess that would be in the, in the LDS scriptures where that con that kind of that concept of regeneration might be, um, presented. And what I find interesting about that is that it, it's presented almost <laughs> in a way where it precedes faith, right? It precedes baptism on the part of those people. Um, so I find it, it's kind of striking that, that Latter-day Saints are so anti-Calvinist and anti, um, you know, salvation by grace through faith only. Mm-hmm. Um, so averse to that idea because it's almost like they, they're, they're, at least the book of Mormon presents that idea in that, in that speech within Alma five. And then to what you were saying, Michael, um, about, you know, what they taught in, in Institute and, and seminary, you know, that if you, if you grow up in the church, it's kind of subtle. I remember when I first was leaving the LDS church, I was on Facebook dialoguing with people. And there was this one Latter-day Saint who really tried to convince me that although I uh, believed that I had had a born again experience that was drawing me out of the LDS church, he was really trying to convince me, no, no, you don't need to do that. See, it's, it's not tied to baptism because he was saying I, I was baptized at eight, but I, I wasn't born again until I was 17. I remember him telling me. Um, so it's just kind of interesting that uh, that's kind of what you were what you were referring to. Right, Michael, is that it, it could happen later in life and it doesn't it's not necessarily going to be miraculous, but it's not necessarily tied to baptism either. Um, yeah. So I was talking to my, my younger brother about this the other day, actually. And he was saying that he actually believes in uh, imputed righteousness because we've been talking about it a lot. But, you know, he was kind of kind of believes it happens when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost mm. um, right after baptism, when you get the laying on of hands. And I was saying, well, what about I mean, you have to have faith first. Right. So what if you're eight and you don't even reach that spot yet? And so he was saying that according to his understanding, it could happen later in life. It's just because they say receive the Holy Ghost. And so you've got that invitation and you can do it anytime afterwards. So, yeah, that's what I'm saying, though, that (laughs) I'd never heard that before, but it just seems different when you talk to different Latter-day Saints. Yeah, for sure. And what's interesting about what you were saying, Michael, is that, um, you know, Latter-day Saints are are anti infant baptism as well, right? The Book of Mormon specifically speaks against that um, in pretty, in pretty strong terms. Um, Right. That, that, I think it says something like, if you even think about it, you're, you're bound for hell. Right. Yeah. It says you die in the moment that you happen to be thinking that children need baptism. You're you're going straight to hell. Right. And yet, you know, I, I, I sit here thinking what, what's the difference between, you know, age eight as a, as kind of an arbitrary age, you know, where they just roll kids through primary and, and everyone gets baptized at age eight and, and baptizing an infant, right. That, in terms, in terms of, you know, whether that eight-year-old has been regenerated and been given a new heart, um, I, I know that wasn't the case for me. So it, it, it's almost like uh, 
they, they do almost hold this position of, of baptismal regeneration, like it kind of, you get baptized and it kind of forces you into this new life, even if, even if God hasn't been drawing you, right? It's, it's, it's a very strange kind of, when you, when you kind of start thinking about the theological details involved, it, it gets really weird and messy when you try to think through the, the Mormon conception of things. Yeah, it, it is for sure. And I was just, I was just thinking about how traumatic it would be if, uh, you know, I mean, you, you know how they've changed revelations in the past or, or policies and said like, Hey, we spoke with a limited understanding, right. When they reversed the priesthood ban on blacks, for instance. And can you imagine if they got up and said, we, we spoke with a limited, limited understanding, the age of accountability is nine, you know, that, that verse in the book of Mormon would actually be condemning everybody who, Mm -hmm. who baptized their children at eight. Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Like they baptize children at eight kind of with the recognition that, and they confirm them and kind of with the recognition that uh, they may not be converted, I guess is that's the way they might view that. And so it's, it's sort of similar, right. To the, maybe the way that, uh, those who who are paedo Baptists view things right. We're go- we're going to do this this ordinance, this sacrament uh, on this child, and and then try to raise them up in the right way and hope that that they become converted at some point in the future. It's and and yet they they would decry that kind of view, but that's that's really what they're doing with eight year olds, just not infants. Well, too well, too. It's. Um you know, depending on the Pado Baptist, the, the Latter-day Saints don't, they don't, you know, they don't believe in original sin. So they don't think baptism has anything to do with original sin. It's only personal sin. Um, and a lot of, so like Catholic teaching and Lutheran teaching, they do believe that baptism does kind of, it, it does undo the, the negative effects of original sin, but it's not for personal sin. So it's, it's interesting just because they, they have different applications of what they think it's actually effectually per- conveying within that sacrament itself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so would, I guess for a pedo Baptist, then I, maybe it would be viewed sort of like a prevenient grace for that person, right? It, do, it undoes original sin such that later on, but, but, but even then they're not pedo Baptists generally are not um, Arminians, right? So they're going to, they're going to still look to God to do the work of, of drawing that person and later in their life to Christ. It, uh, it gets complicated because um, like for instance, with Lutherans, they do believe that faith is actually a gift that God does give the infant through baptism. Um, and they do actually grant them salvation and regeneration and all those things. And so it's kind of more like, I think from what I understand from what I've, what I've read of Lutheran theology, the idea is that they are truly saved the infant and it's praying that they keep that salvation, that they keep the spirit, that they continue in the faith. Um, for, for pedo Baptists that are reformed, like reformed Presbyterians or Dutch reformed, um, it's, it's, they see it more of in a covenantal way, kind of like circumcision, you know, like, like we, like, uh, Michael, you said that, uh, circumcision, it represented the sign and seal of righteousness of Abraham. Yep. Uh, and so all his descendants were given circumcision, but not all of them received what the signs signified. So they received circumcision, but they did not necessarily receive the regeneration and seal of righteousness that Abraham had. So it's something that they give to their children, 
knowing that they might not actually receive what the sign is pointing to. So with Paedo-Baptist, Reformed Paedo-Baptist, they give the sign to their children, hoping and praying that God will work in their heart and save them and give them what the baptism signifies. But many of them recognize and, and they experience children that are baptized, that receive the receive baptism as an infant taught in the church, but then they are never saved. And then they, they don't lose salvation, but they... Um, they just show that they're not part of the the elect or the um, part of the the new covenant membership. You know, the elect the, the elect people of God. So there's outward members and inward members. And so if you're a baptized infant, you're an outward member in the church, in the visible church. But if unless you're saved by the work of the Holy Spirit, you're not a member of the inward church or the invisible church. So there's a lot of it with Reformed Pado Baptists. It's, it's, it's a different kind of mentality or a different kind of apologetic than like a Lutheran would use for uh, baptizing infants. They believe it's more like it, it effectually does re- remove original sin. So you want to do it as early as possible um, to make sure that the, the child is saved. And that's kind of like what Augustine, St. Augustine, he believed and his, his theology kind of brought into the church. And so that's why it stuck with Roman Catholicism for a long time. And it still does today. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff you can really get into. And I was, and I love talking about this stuff, but I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've gone pretty far afield, uh, so, and that's that's my fault. But I was trying to raise questions that I think might be in a Latter Day Saint or post Latter Day Saint's mind as they listen to us. So, oh sure, no, they're great. They're great questions. I wanted to ask you guys both a question as well, um, just because I think, just to borrow a term from James White that I learned recently. Um, I guess I'd consider myself sort of an imputationist, maybe even a hyper imputationist. Um, actually, no, I think that would be an antinomian, actually. So, no. <laughs> if you're so hyper, maybe you should just lay off the coffee. You know what? It was it was Mr. Pibb, okay? It wasn't hey, hey, let's not let's not invite him in yet. It's too early. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, the spirit of carbonated contention. <laughs> yeah. So... So from my understanding, uh, Christ, you know, he didn't just die for us. He lived for us. And, you know, that's why you see like in Matthew chapter three, when, when Christ gets baptized, he says to John the Baptist, you know, suffer it to be so now for it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. And so he was doing this to fulfill righteousness, to be righteous on our behalf. So what I understand, and I could be wrong, and, and maybe you guys can help me out here, but... Um, my understanding is when we believe like Romans four says over and over again, that Christ's righteousness is accredited to us at faith. And when we believe, and so it would include the righteous act of him being baptized as well. I think I actually said that when I was a, a brand new ex Mormon is that Christ's righteous uh, Christ's baptism is imputed to us um, as well. So I don't know. Does that sound like that's way off base to you guys? First of all, so the idea specifically of his baptism or of his entire life of righteousness is imputed to us? Both. I've, I've thought about the, the, the positive righteousness of Christ definitely being imputed to us. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought much specifically about his baptism, but um, I know that he did so in humility and submission. And so I, I think in doing so, he was obeying the Father, and that was part of his positive righteousness. So I think that is, I think, I do think that that makes logical sense that it, that that positive righteousness through that act of obedience is imputed to us. Okay. I mean, that's, that's just what I was thinking too, but I think the, and, and I think you guys have kind of answered it already, but just because of, of the way I think the way my brain is wired, I'm having a hard time 
crossing the bridge from Christ's righteousness is, is imputed to us to another act afterwards regenerates us. Does that make sense? Because I'm like, once you have Christ's righteousness and it happens at faith, then how can you add to that in any way? Yeah. So I, like I said before, I'm not a baptismal regenerationist, so I, I don't believe that regeneration happens at baptism. Um, I think it temporarily follow, or precedes uh, faith. Um, that, that gift of a new heart has to take place. Uh, I, I think it's part of the drawing of God, um, of a believer, uh, to give them the new heart so that they can uh, respond in faith to, to the call. Uh, otherwise, they're still in a state of of hating God and being in rebellion to God. So that new heart has to come temporarily first, I think. And then once that takes place, um, you know, baptism is an act of faith. It's an act of obedience to Christ um, because it's a, it's a commandment that Christ gave, which we'll get into later. It's a commandment that his disciples give to those that they are uh, making disciples within the New Testament. So it's, it's an act of faith. It's an act of 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 obedience and it um it does it is a means of grace in that it as i said before it it confirms and strengthens our trust in christ as our savior and trust in the in the idea that as you said michael that his his righteousness uh is imputed to us um and so yeah i'm, I'm not a regenerationist uh, when it comes to baptism I, I think that happens prior to it okay yeah that's what i think too what do you think matthew and if you're both on board with that you're like a hop, skip, and a jump away from being reformed. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> but no, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's the reformed view. The idea that regeneration precedes faith. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, you just look at my favorite passages are Colossians 2, Ephesians 2, Romans 8, where it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You know, a dead man can't just, mad, you know, he can't get up and start walking. It talks about how we were raised up with Christ and the we being believers, not everybody, you know, not this idea of, you know, um, prevenient grace where everybody is, you know, brought to life. It's only those who believe in Christ were brought to life. So yeah, we can't come to faith without having that change of heart first. So I think Paul did a great job explaining yeah. that. And I, I think where I'm, where I might differ slightly with you, Michael is, is, um, in, in the idea that baptism is, is only symbolic. Um, because I do think God is doing a real work there just as he does a real work in regeneration. Um, it's I, it's not a work that saves, but it's it's a work that confirms the trust of the believer in in his Lord or in her Lord, right? And so, um, I think that there's there's truth in in the idea that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, um, but I think I, I hold a pretty high view of the sacraments that you know, I, th I think you can get into uh, some believers can get into thinking along the lines of, you know, oh, so there's regeneration and that, that precedes faith. And therefore, you know, someone really doesn't need to be baptized. And I think that if, if you, if you go that far, um, then I think you're outside of the teaching of the new Testament. Yeah. Well, I'm not even sure you're a Christian right now. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Going full blown Mr. Pig. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about you, Michael. I'm just saying oh, like, if, okay. if a person, if a person goes that far and says, you know, a believer doesn't need to be baptized at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I, don't, actually, I don't think you're teaching the new Testament at that point. Yeah. And I, I agree with you, by the way, I think the baptism, you people should be baptized. Um, and I guess, 
because I, I want to just clarify my position a little bit too, because I don't have as low of a, a position of the sacraments as you may think I do. I don't think that it's merely symbolic either. I just, I think that's what I think of when I describe them, I guess. But I guess if I were going to do an analogy, it's kind of like if a, a man may love a woman and, and that love is real, but then when, when that man marries the woman, uh, it is like a, it's a sign and seal of that love. You know, it's a way of saying you are mine. And I think that when, when we're baptized in these sacraments, they are a gift from God to us. And it's a sign from him that he loves us and that we are his. And I think that it really can empower us and and help us with our sanctification. I think it, it does make a real change in us as well. I just don't think that it, uh, affects, you know, brings salvation about or regeneration. Right. Right. And I would agree with that. I, I think, um, I think I see, you know, I see a lot online, uh, people will take people who are trying to engage in evangelism or apologetics to Latter-day Saints will take that position almost as a, uh, it's almost like they view it as it has to be a contrary position to a Latter-day Saint saying that baptism is necessary for salvation. So they'll say, well, it's not necessary for salvation. Therefore, you, you, nobody has to do it. Really, you know that they take that really contrary position, and rather than rather than getting into the nuance of of what the New Testament actually teaches. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's just such a a desire, you know, to to show something that is completely, you know, 180 degrees different from mm-hmm. Mormonism. And thing is, Mormonism is not wrong about everything. Right. Right. And that's where I think it's important to get in, to get into the nuance. So, okay. So I think we've, have we, have we, uh, exhausted the, the questions? I think we've exhausted that one. That's what question number one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's really a great discussion. Yeah. I was kind of hoping that something like that would happen because these are kind of like pretty cut and dry. Like, Hey, what do you think about this passage? What do you think about that? So I'm glad you brought those up. That was really good. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc., You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at AdamsRoadMinistry.com. Stay bright, fireflies.
Oh